Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. What a blessing to worship the Lord together. It's such a, a, a privilege, really, as part of the body of Christ to all come together to be singing, to be seeking the Lord, to be hearing from Him. It's a beautiful illustration of the unity we share in Christ. Praise Him for that. So I do have some announcements today that... Uh, the Wednesday Women's Bible Study, that's up and running again. The Friday Studies, those are back on as well for the youth and the adults at 7.30 p.m. here. Uh, and some other uh, announcements. We have the AGM coming up 22 May. So that will just be after the church service. We'll go through the AGM, and uh, it's like another quarterly meeting. There's just a little bit more detail about financials and things like that. Also, we are tentatively planning a family camp in 2024. So that'll be at the Coleroy Center during school holidays, 15 to 18 April. So that, there, there's an interest list for that out in the foyer, and we just need to know if people wanna go because we have to pay a deposit and um, then we're on the hook. So it'd be great if you guys would consider that and uh, let us know your interest, and we'll be able to confirm that, hopefully before or during the AGM. All right, well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all. Thank you that it is true that you do make all things work for our good. And I pray that we would actually believe that's true, and that we would rejoice even in suffering and in sorrow and pain, knowing that you are good, and you're working even difficult situations in life for our good, and not just our good, but for the good of others. We praise you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are wise, that you, your ways are higher than ours, and we acknowledge that you are good, that you are glorious, our King, our Lord, and Savior. And we thank you for Jesus, and that through his sacrifice, we can be made whole, that we can be redeemed and be grafted into the, into the kingdom of God, part of your family, and that we can be united one with another. Lord, I thank you for this uh, congregation, for their gifts, for their service, for the uh, blessings that you have uh, lavished upon us through one another and our service to you. And we pray that we would be united in your love, in your grace and goodness, and that you would strengthen us, Lord, and edify us as we read your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. God's ways and thoughts are higher than ours. Sometimes we, we think God should do something. We know he could do something, but he doesn't seem to be doing anything. And we can wonder why he's waiting or what's going on. And he allows events that we wish would have never happened. I think of Samson. That's a perfect example. We'll go through many of those this morning, but Samson, his parents were told before his birth he would be a Nazarite from the womb, and she was, so the, the mother of Samson was told, you should not be eating unclean food, you, you should not be drinking or eating any fruit of the vine, no wine, and do not cut uh, Samson's hair, like the baby's hair. And so they did. They were very cautious to observe the things commanded them. But when Samson was grown, he loved a woman of the Philistines. And he's like, I found the woman I want to marry. Get her for me. And his parents were very concerned. They're like, is there not a woman among our tribe or just any Hebrew woman that you'd rather marry? Nope. 
She's the one I want. And it says in Judges 14.4, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson's looking for love. He's looking for a wife. His parents want him to marry within their tribe. But it was of the Lord that he would go to the Philistines because God had a bigger idea than just Samson being wed, but that his whole people would no longer be oppressed by the Philistines. Now that is wild, right? That it's not what I would be thinking. That through one relationship that I'm that you that a parent was uncomfortable with or against, that God was doing something to restore his people, to save them. So Samson, he didn't listen to his parents, but God used it in his plan to save people. So in Joshua 11, it said that God hardened the hearts of the Canaanites to attack Israel. And they wanted to destroy the children of God, but God allowed their assaults so to the end that his land and his people would be free from war. Now that's interesting, right? That's counterintuitive. That like, I want my people to be free from war, so I'm going to allow war so that their enemies will be destroyed. And that I'll protect, they will actually experience rest through that suffering. Sometimes the Bible does tell us why God does something. We can look at our lives and we can say, you know, God was faithful during that time where I wasn't even thinking about it. He protected me. He guided me. He guarded me. And at that time, maybe we weren't able to perceive him working at all. Our thoughts perhaps were not even on God, but looking back, we see how he protected us. And based on the book of Job, Another passage of scripture, I don't believe that God will answer all of our questions. He's not obligated to. But based upon God's unchanging character as revealed in the Bible, we know all we need to know to trust God now and always in our lives today, despite suffering and into the future. Because God always rewards those who trust him. And we see that with Joseph as well. God sent Joseph to Egypt. His brothers sold him into Egypt. But that was God sending. God redeemed that terrible circumstance and that separation from his family to save many people alive, to save the whole nation and the surrounding countries that they would have food. And God would use him going to Egypt to bring restoration to relationships that had been splintered for decades. So God cares about the big picture, but he also cares about the individual the person who suffers and the people around them. And he's able to redeem, he's able to use it all for good, which is something only God can do. We just think about my good, our good, what's good for me. But God's plans are so much greater than that. Genesis 42 verse one. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. This famine we read was a global uh, problem, but God had providentially sent Joseph beforehand to prepare and there was grain in Egypt. I don't know exactly how Jacob heard of this, but there were a lot of nomadic travelers and traders that would come through and they told him, hey, where are you getting your grain these days? It's all dried up around here. Oh, well, Egypt is the place. People are going there. All right, that's where we need to go. 
And so we say, like, what are you waiting for? Like, it's clear that there's only one option. And he's like, why are you guys looking at each other? Go down to Egypt. We need to eat. (laughs) So get us some food so we can live. Joseph's 10 older brothers, the exact same ones that sold him into as a slave to Midianite traders, they went as commanded. But Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, stayed behind. Uh, Jacob was very protective of him. He was the last remaining son of Rachel, a wife that he loved. And he believed that Joseph had been torn apart by a wild beast and died on a, on a trip. And so he's like, I don't want that happening. I don't want any problems coming to Benjamin. So he kept him close. He was an adult by this point, probably around 30, 30 years old or so. There's a scene that happened when Solomon was king in Israel. So he had made these golden shields, 300 expensive shields. They weighed about 6.8 kilos each of gold. He had 300 of them. It was like modern day value, about 675,000 a shield. 200 million plus in just these ornaments that were in the house of Lebanon. Because Solomon was very wealthy. And I mean, if you've got 666 talents of gold coming in annually, you can splurge on some uh, golden shields. So during the reign of his son Rehoboam, it says that King Shishak came up from Egypt and attacked Israel because they had disobeyed the Lord. They had sinned against him. So he defeated their cities, he plundered the temple treasury, and he took those 300 golden shields. 2 Chronicles 12.10, it tells us, then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guard would go and bring them out. Then they would take them back into the guard room. It seems that Rehoboam is a lot more protective of these bronze shields that he made uh, to replace the golden shields that were taken. Because he's like, I made bronzes very inexpensive compared to gold. He didn't have the gold anymore. They had robbed the treasury. And so then he, he makes these bronze shields and whenever he went into the house of the Lord, they brought them out. And then the captain of the guard stored them under lock and key. So they were like protected. And it's by loss we're able to realize the value of what we have. Have you ever noticed that? It's when you've lost something that you begin to treasure what you still have. And you hold it dear to your heart. And that's what Jacob did with his son. He's like, I've lost Joseph, but I'm not losing Benjamin. But, you know, locks would not protect bronze shields from tarnishing. It wouldn't keep them from being seized by a victorious king. Jacob keeping Benjamin close to him wasn't going to keep him from getting sick or starving from hunger. So as God's people, we trust him to protect us for our needs now and the future. Our rest is in him. Genesis 42, verse 5. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. The 10 sons of Jacob, they go up, they go down to Egypt and they weren't the only ones. It says people from Canaan from all over were going to Egypt to buy food. And 
governor, Joseph was the governor, he was also personally involved in the sale of this grain. He's a skilled delegator, but he's also a hands-on worker. Like, I was a bit surprised to read that he was actually involved in the processing of people coming through to sell the grain. But he was there, and uh, he recognized them. He recognized their accents, their looks, but they didn't recognize him. He had been in Egypt for more than half of his life by this point. He had come at 17. He had 11 years in the house of Potiphar, two years in prison-ish, and then he was seven years of plenty, and now we're into that seven years of famine. And so he's in his late 30s, and he looked like an Egyptian, and he spoke like an Egyptian, especially to his foreign brothers. And when he saw them, he acted rough to conceal his identity. He gave them no clue that he knew them. There's no like winking or you know, trying to get their attention or talking, like addressing them by person. Like they had no idea who he was. And he says, where are you from? And they go, well, we came from Canaan to buy food. Verse nine, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no more. Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh because God had caused him to forget the toil of his father's house. He looked back at his brothers. He wasn't obsessing or, or grieved about them or what they had done to him. There, were, there was no grudge he was nursing against them. But when he saw them, it says he remembered the dreams that he had had about them. It's like those thoughts flooded back into his mind. The Lord reminded him of the things he dreamt before. And during his youth, remember his brothers hated him because he was the favorite child of Jacob. He had that tunic of many colors. He, he received preferential treatment. And the dreams that he shared, they fueled the animosity they had towards him, and they hated him even more because of them. Let's just turn back to Genesis 37, verse 6, to refresh our memory of these dreams. And notice it's not just dream, but both of the dreams that he remembered. Genesis 37, verse 6. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. On that day when his brothers came before him and bowed down, he's like, that first dream has been fulfilled. They're all bowing before me. They had come from a far land lacking grain, and even as their sheaves bowed down to mine, they have come to me looking for grain for food for themselves. And it was encouraging that he remembered dreams because the second one had not fully been fulfilled, right? Because it says the 11 stars, that includes his brother, brother Benjamin, and the sun and moon bow down. His whole family would bow before him. And as God fulfilled the first dream, he could trust that God would fulfill the second dream. 
he could have confidence that God would bring it to pass. He was going to see his family again, his, his brother Benjamin and his dad. And God would bring it to pass in his own time and way. Now, our focus is often on like, when is God going to do this? Because I've been waiting a long time. I've been praying a long time. I think something should have happened by now. We do better to focus on the sovereignty of God and what he has said. Like, well, has God ever lied? No, he speaks the truth. Is he faithful to his promise? Yes, he is. We should have confidence in him, not in doubt because he hasn't done what we thought when he should have. And when we say, but when, when is it going to happen? God doesn't answer that with a time. He answers with who he is and what he has said. He reminds us again. And that's what Joseph is having here. He reminds him of that dream that he had all that time ago that he would be faithful to fulfill. So Joseph, he puts on this rough persona. We know from later that he's actually speaking through an interpreter. So he's, he's speaking to the interpreter and the interpreter is speaking. So they are not really... There's, there's an in-between person, a mediator. And he says, you guys are spies. You've got the sinister ulterior motive. You are loyal to a foreign power. You are coming here to see the nakedness of the land and you want our wealth for yourself. So he accuses them of being spies. And the more he accuses them, the more information they volunteer. And that's what he wants. He wants more information back. Is How's dad doing? How's the family doing? He's like, oh, no, you guys are spies. Oh, no, really? We're 12 men from Canaan. And, and our, youngest is our, 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 brother, our youngest brother is with dad right now. Oh, no, spies, spies. And, and then notice what they said of him. They said there was one brother who was no more, written off as deceased. This was a lie. They didn't know what had happened to their brother, but they told their dad after they had sold him, oh, he's been torn by these beasts. Look at his cloak. It's, and they had doctored it. They had torn it up and put some blood on it that looked like an accident had happened. And, um, but they kept repeating this lie that he was no more. He was deceased. And they didn't know that they were actually speaking to him at that time. So they refused to own up to their guilt of what they had done many years ago. And under the guise and acting for the, for the best for national security, Joseph's motive is to gain about information about the family because he actually cared for them. He wanted, we'll read later, that his heart yearned to go to them. But there was a process. There's a book I'm reading now. The author describes our need to identify and deal with the malice and duplicity that marks our, our hearts and our will. That our will is always looking to please itself. We're always looking to have our needs met. We are always angling for what is beneficial for us. And we're willing to help others as long as we get something good out of the deal. So because we're focused on doing our will and meeting our needs, quite often we disregard completely the will of God and the plans of God and, the, and what God has said. And if we, have you ever noticed someone who is so duplic, du, duplicity? It means two-faced, right? You, you have two minds. It's, and have you ever noticed someone who was two-faced? Someone who is saying one thing to your face, but then backstabbing you? you? You notice that? Well, it's like you're looking in a mirror. Whenever you see the lack of character or quality in a person, know that you have that insight because it's true about you too. 
We don't always show it in the same way, but it's good for us to own that as the reality. Jesus waited when he heard that Lazarus was sick, and he did this on purpose, and we wonder, what kind of friend was Jesus to do that? That's what Mary and Martha wondered. They knew that Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he had come in time, but he didn't, and he waited day after day after day. And after their brother died, and he was buried in the tomb, and they heard that Jesus had come, they were offended that Jesus could have done something. They had sent the messenger, but he didn't come. So the answer of what kind of friend was he? Well, infinitely better than them. He, d he did not malign them. He had a bigger plan than just the healing of Lazarus in mind. He could have prevented death, but he allowed death because it would accomplish the purpose of saving souls alive. So Jesus waited with the good of Lazarus, the good of his sisters, all the eyewitnesses, and everyone who reads that account, he waited and allowed Lazarus to die because he planned to raise him from the dead after four days. So he was really dead. Like there was no, it wasn't like he was asleep or tired. Like he was definitely dead and stinking by that time. But he did this miracle so that people would know that the Lord had sent him, that God the Father had sent him, that he was God in the flesh, and he gives life to all who trusted him. And it said many believed on him when they saw what happened, and many believed on him because they saw Lazarus alive. That was God's plan. He was working at something better than just helping out his friends when they wanted it. He was looking to save people forever. It's one thing to believe Jesus is a miracle worker, but he wanted them to know he's a Messiah. He's a savior. Now, Joseph, he's not speaking roughly to his brothers to punish them, to get back at them for hurting him, to make their lives miserable. He wants to help them. He wants to provide for them. And he wants to be restored in relationship, and that would come. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison three days. Now before a relationship could be restored with his brothers, there was this need of testing. He took action to see, does, are they speaking the truth? Are their words true to reality? They had been repeating the lie that Joseph was no more. He would put them to the test to make sure they were speaking the truth concerning his brother, Benjamin. And he swore by the life of Pharaoh, like, you guys are spies unless you prove this to me. And the punishment for being a spy was death. So their lives were on the line. This is a very serious accusation. And he says, one of you is going to be permitted to leave, to go back to Canaan, retrieve your brother, and then I'll know you're telling me the truth. So they're arrested. I mean, they just come to buy food. And now they've been arrested, they've been accused of spies, and they have been thrown into prison for three days. And they had plenty of time to think and to converse and to wonder and to worry. And I'm sure with all that time, they said, this is unfair. This isn't right. We're not spies. Like, what, what does this guy think we are? 
Now let's not forget that Joseph had the Holy Spirit who guided him with how to prepare for this famine that was coming, how to provide food for all the people and even these uh, international travelers that were coming in to buy. And so he also had wisdom from God to prove his brothers, to put them to the test wisely. And he would examine them to see if they were the same murderous, envious, greedy men as before, or if they had changed, if they were actually speaking the truth about their family. Now, when God allows delays, when God allows incarceration, when we're in need, we wonder, why is this necessary? Why, why is this trial happening? What's the point of this? Can't this be avoided? I thought I finished school and test was over. Like, I don't need to be tested anymore. But no, God allows tests. And we think, if Joseph really cared for them, shouldn't he made it easy for them? Shouldn't he have made himself known to them? Shouldn't he have, you know, extended the olive branch to them straight away and just embraced them and said, hey, guys, welcome. Welcome to Egypt. You can eat the fat of the land. Like, why go, to, why go through the trouble of sending them to prison? Now, we're not told why Joseph did this, and that's okay. We see God doing this all throughout the Bible. We understand that a parent corrects and trains their child with their future in mind, and God can use a brother as his instrument to correct as well. Not just a parent, but a brother, a sibling. Think of workers in a refinery that melt down ore to refine it, to test it. God is faithful to do this by countless means. I think of God's people bringing them out of Egypt, or while they were in Egypt, right? They're, they're suffering. They are slaves, and they cry out to God for help. And God listened to them and sent Moses in response to deliver them. And then God brought them through the wilderness and they had a tough time of it. It was hard living a nomadic life. They didn't have a place they could call their own. They didn't even know where water was. And when they went to the brook, sometimes it was dry. And so he gave them experience. He taught them with his word. He proved them. He tested them. He refined them. And God chastened them when they did wrong but he continued to supply all their needs. He kept answering their prayers. And I really like the New Living Translation of the rendering of Deuteronomy 8, 16, and 17. It says, he fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. So God's meeting the needs of his people on the day. He's given them manna day by day. But he was also preparing them for the future so that when they were in the land and they were eating like kings, they wouldn't forget that he was their king. He's like, I don't want you to forget me. So I'm going to prepare you for 40 years of eating the same thing every day so that you'll know that it's not because you're strong. It's not because you're mighty that you're eating so well, but because I am your God. I am your king. And then Moses went on in this passage to warn them and say, if you forsake the Lord, you will be destroyed. There will be consequences for your sin. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 66, starting in verse 8, where we read of God's people and what they experienced. And they're looking back. They're looking back of how God has dealt with them. And it wasn't easy, but they could see in the end it was for their good. It's one thing to sing it. 
you make all things work together for my good. You believe that. Do you know that? Psalm 66, 8. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. The Jewish people, they had many difficulties in Egypt, in the wilderness, in the promised land. Like it didn't stop. They, they were brought into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And even as a potter has something in mind when that clay is thrown upon the wheel or a goldsmith melts gold in the crucible, God has a plan in delays and discomfort con confining us, right? Being in the net, you're trapped, you can't get out. Well, he's got a plan in that and breaking us down. And that's what God did to his people. He broke them down, he humbled them, he put them in his net, not to destroy them, but with the plan to bring them into rich fulfillment, a place of abundance where they realize God's grace is sufficient. He is praiseworthy. Bless his holy name. He is our God. And that's the response of those who trust the Lord. To bless God, to praise him. We want immediate comfort. I want immediate comfort. If I'm laying in a position in bed, and I'm like, this is really uncomfortable. What do I do? I move. I don't just stay there. Like, the night time can be some of the most painful time for people because it's uncomfortable to lay there. And something that you just took for granted as a kid, like, I'm just going to go to sleep. And I'm going to sleep through the night. I won't have to get up four times to use the toilet or, you know, be getting out of bed. Like, oh, my goodness, what happened? Was I hit by a truck or was I sleeping? <laughs> and we want to be comforted. We want to find rest, but really it's not in your bed. It's, it's in Christ. It's in God where there's rest for our souls. Enduring, not just temporal pain relief. We're talking about eternal well-being in the presence of God. And God will use this. He uses trials to prove a person. He knows what they're about, but he will use that trial to show them if their faith is genuine. To show that is this is your faith like gold or is it just plastic painted gold? That's what a storm on the Atlantic did for John Wesley. The missionary was going from England to reach the heathen of Georgia in the United States. And he was going to the Indians to convert them. But while he's going, there was a series of hurricanes and storms, and people were shrieking, people were scared to death. He was among them. He's like, I am afraid to die. And yet there was this group of Christians that were singing calmly praises to God. He's like, weren't you afraid? They're like, no, we trust God. He's like, wow. That's the irony of it, right? He's going in his zeal to preach. And it wasn't until he came back to England after many months later where he's like, you know, I wasn't even saved. I knew a lot about the Bible. I knew what they should learn, but I didn't really believe. I wasn't ever born again. And, and he, he, after he began to reflect upon that journey, he confessed his unbelief, his pride, his duplicity in crying out to God when things were tough, 
but not crying out to God when things were good. And he says, I'm not saved. Because when things are good, I never pray. But when things are hard, boy, I was praying on that ship. I was praying and I had no peace because I wasn't trusting. And this is what he wrote in a journal in January of 1738. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who, what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near, but let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. So he's convinced. Yeah, I, I don't really know Jesus. I'm not really trusting Jesus. And so God used the wild storms and the calm peace of those Christians singing. They brought him to a personal saving faith in Jesus. He would have done anything to escape that storm, but God put him through that storm and he kept him so that he could be redeemed, so that he could be saved, so that he could know Christ, he could find eternal salvation. If you're afraid to die, if you cannot refuse to sin, if the joy of the Lord is not your strength, it may be that you have not trusted Jesus. So let's trust him today and say, yep, this is working for good. God is faithful. Genesis 42, 18. Then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So the third day, Joseph meets with his brothers again and he's changed the deal. Remember the first time he says, one of you can go. Now he's like, well, all of you but one can go. One will remain here in prison. And that will allow you to bring the grain you need back to your family so you'll be able to transport more grain. And then you can return with your brother so your words can be verified. If you're lying spies, you're going to be executed. But if they confirm the truth by bringing their brother, they would be spared. And I like that Joseph says, I fear God. That's why I'm doing this. The fear of God allowed him to wield authority wisely and to deal with his brothers kindly. Now suddenly his brothers begin to speak of their guilt about their brother. Now if the governor was a stranger, he would have assumed probably it was the brother they had left back home. But he knew they were talking about him, Joseph. Three days in jail prompted the men to consider reasons why they were in jail. Have you guys ever wondered that? Like, my car is making a weird noise. Why is that happening? I am sick. Why am I so sick? This trouble is happening. Why is it happening? I mean, we ask these questions, right? Because if we, if we can find out the answer, perhaps we can find a solution to the problem. Some of us, they find a problem and we just want to try to solve it. We're trying to just fix it as fast as we can. But they're in prison for three days and they're ruminating over what's happened to them and now they're like, man, we are really guilty concerning our brother. We didn't listen to him when he was crying, when he, was ang he showed anguish, and we didn't listen. And that's why this has happened to us. And this is 20 years earlier this had happened. 
They remembered all of this that they were guilty of, that they'd been hiding and covering and lying about for so long, where they're just, oh yeah, he's gone. He's no more. But they remembered their part in it. They tried to cover it up. They lied about it to their father. They lied to the governor in Egypt. It was just part of their life now. They just, this was their, their line and their sin, it haunted them. They could not escape it. It was like their sin of hating and selling and refusing to listen to the brother and lying about it. That was a prison they were living in 24-7 and they didn't realize it until they were actually in prison. They were stuck there. And then they, they admitted, yep, we deserve it. We deserve it for what we've done. They listened to their conscience and they agreed with it, maybe for the first time in decades. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter and he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. If we were to go back to the Genesis 37 account, we see that Reuben did step in to his brothers when they suggested they murder him and just leave him in a pit. He's like, oh no, let's not kill him. Let's just chuck him in the pit. Let's not let our hand be upon him. He is our brother anyway. He didn't rebuke them for wanting to kill him. I mean, he probably wanted to kill him as well. He hated him, but he had this secret plan to double back when his brothers weren't around and pull him out of the pit, bring him back safe to his dad. And then as those Midianite traders approached, Reuben wasn't there. Judah suggests, well, why don't we just sell him? Let's not let our hand be upon him. We can make a little coin and be rid of this dreamer. And they all agreed to it. And then Reuben, he, he casually goes by the pit and what? No Joseph. And he tears his clothes and he's like, what am I to do? All right, the cover-up started. They get his tunic, put the blood of the animal on it, and he was distraught. And he said, you should have listened. Now his blood is required of us. And this was something Joseph had never heard before. He, he had not heard this conversation. He, didn't, he thought everyone was against him. He didn't think anyone would stand up for him, but his brother Reuben had stood up for him. And he has this flood of emotion that Reuben worked to spare his life. And Reuben is under the impression that he's dead when he's talking to him. So Reuben has been bearing this weight that I am part of the guilty party for my brother's demise. And Joseph is alive and well and speaking with him. And it just overwhelmed Joseph and he kind of left. He, he cried hearing their remorse. After he composed himself, he returned and talked with them, and he arrested Simeon, who's the second oldest brother. So he spared Reuben from that and returned him to prison. Now, God, he's given us the capacity for thought, for memory, and a conscience. We have all done and said regrettable things, words that we wished we could have taken back, things we wished we would have done differently. And we've experienced regret for different reasons. Trouble that we brought upon ourselves, pain that we've caused other people, our sin before God. I think of Cain, he was very, uh, he regretted or he was upset. He said, my punishment is greater than I could bear. Didn't even, he wasn't showing remorse, but he was just thinking of himself. 
I think of Peter on the night he betrayed Jesus. He was told, you're going to betray me three times. He says, I would never betray you. I'll die before I betray you. And then once he, be- once he denied him the third time, he says, he looked up and their eyes met. And Jesus just looked at him and he wept bitterly. He regretted that he had betrayed and denied Christ. Or not betrayed, but denied him. Peter, he confronted the Jews at the temple that they were guilty of crucifying the Messiah that God had sent to save the world. And it says that their conscience was pricked. And they're like, oh no. They finally, like, they, they realized we, have, we are guilty before God. And Reuben and his brothers didn't realize Joseph was alive and there was nothing they could do to reverse the sin they had committed. The things they had done, it was all, all long ago. There was no way to redeem themselves from their guilt and they were really resigned to a prison of guilt and shame without hope because an apology can't change the past. It can't raise a dead brother to life. It can't reunite a grieving father with his long lost son. They couldn't do that and they were burdened by it. But you know, God can use dreams, being sold as a slave, a global famine, a son looking for love in the wrong places, the loss of 300 gold shields, a storm on the ocean, betrayals, denials, and unexpected reunions to prove us, to reveal what's in our heart, what we treasure, who we treasure, if our faith is legitimate or not. And being in prison for three days in Egypt, God exposed old regrets in the hearts of his brothers with the aim to reconcile them to their brother, that they could be reunited in relationship again. And not only that, but that their families could be provided for. Like Reuben and his brothers, they couldn't redeem themselves. Like we go, I want to redeem myself. I want to work my way back. They couldn't. They knew that. Sometimes we don't realize. We try, but we, we can't either. <laughs> we can't undo what we've done. But God would redeem the awful things they did. So they couldn't redeem themselves, but God would redeem even their iniquity so that many people could be saved alive, so that relationships could be restored. When Peter confronted the Jews, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Like, what could they do? They crucified Christ. But in doing that, God redeemed it, didn't he? Because he created, he, he made a way of atonement and a way of forgiveness and redemption for them by his grace. They couldn't take back shouting, crucify him. Like they're like, I was one who yelled that. I didn't even know why I did. But I did and I meant it and God heard it. I can't take it back. We have a hope in Christ that has been extended to us. Not by what we do, but by all Jesus has done. And today Jesus calls guilty people with blood on their hands to come to him humbly, to repent of their sin, to receive him by faith as the son of God, to follow him and God allows troubles, whether it's a trouble that's happened to you or a trouble within you, a conflict with the intent to bring you out of it to a place of abundance, to learn of him, to know him, to follow him. Will you remain in a perpetual prison of 
regret and guilt for your sin, or will you repent and trust him? That he is a redeemer, that all things work together for good to those who love God. We can receive the gospel, forgiveness, and a new life with Christ. And I love that response in Psalm 66, 8 and 9. Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. Bless him, praise him, thank him for what he's done. Affliction and sorrow that leads us to repentance, it moves us to rejoice because of his redemption. And our suffering, it guards us to abide in him moving forward because the psalmist says in 119.67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Awesome. That God can redeem affliction for good. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. And even in the affliction you allow, the pain that you allow, Thank you that there's purpose in it that is redeemed according to your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, and for letting us know that you can redeem us. You can free us from a prison of guilt and shame. You can free us from the penalty of sin and death and unite us with yourself in your righteousness that we can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. We can be justified through what Jesus has accomplished. We're so grateful, Lord, that we're not as Reuben, who had no idea that his brother was alive and standing there. We know our Savior is alive and at the right hand of the Father, sitting down, his work accomplished, interceding on our behalf, giving us the Holy Spirit, helping us, comforting us, guiding us into all truth. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the power of Jesus to save and for the new life that we have by your grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us in our lives where our faith is fake, it's faulty, it's not legitimate because we are leaning on our own understanding. We are trusting ourselves to redeem ourselves when we need you to trust you, to fear you, and to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Father, thank you for the patience you've shown to us and for your plans and purposes which are good. Thank you for those pastures of green you cause us to lie down in, that we're not perpetually wandering through the valley of the shadow of death, but you bring us into a place of abundance, a place where we are kept, and a place where we will abide with you forever in your presence. We love you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.